Some of this history makes for uncomfortable listening. What you're about to listen to comes from a different time and world. In the words of the late Ngāti Toa Aura, Uncle Iwi Nicholson, Nā, ko te ao Māori tērā. Tā rātou mahi, he patu tangata, kaitangata, muru taonga, muru whenua, ko te ao Māori tēnā, me o tikanga. Well, that's the traditional Māori world. What they did was kill people, eat people, forcibly take possessions and land, even though it's unpleasant. That's the traditional Māori world and its customs. He pukapuka tātaku tēnei i ngā mahi a te rauparaha nui, o tōna itinga, kaumātua noa. This is a record of the life of the great te rauparaha, from childhood to old age. Ngā tānata mai ti tupuake, ngā tamihana te rauparaha, i tuhituhi kei wariwari. Kei wariwari, so that the details are not forgotten. We begin with his parents and a prophecy. Te Rauparaha's father was Werawera. E kia ana e heta maiti pai a Werawera i tōna itinga ai, he ahua pai hoki ki te titiru atu. A well-behaved and good-looking child, ka nui haere tōna ingoa i runga i ona mahi atawhai me tōna tō, who grew into a warrior and leader known for his generosity. Ki tā te kōrero, he kōtiro pai a parekohatu i tōna itinga, Te Rauparaha's mother, Parikohatu, was also quite attractive and a well-behaved girl when she was young. <laughs> but anyway, you came from quite noble parents. Werawera was smitten with Parikohatu and asked her father if they could be married. Well, the old fella kept telling him to, to get lost. You know? This is Ngāti Tō Kaumātua and historian Dr. Te Takuparai. The old man um, wasn't going to hand her over just like that. Pari Kōhatu was her father's favourite, his youngest daughter, who he wasn't ready to part with. He says things like, she's the last pōtiro that I have. Go find someone else. You know, but Weta Weta was quite persistent. And um, so at the end of the day, the old fellow said, I can't end yet. Okay, you can have a hand in marriage. Having given his blessing, Koraaputa is said to have delivered a prophecy. Says, look, from this reunion would come a great leader of our people, a tanifa. From this union will come forth a tanifa. A tanifa, someone extraordinary, a great leader, someone with vision, strategy communication, oral ability, and also warfare. So someone that was going to come to the fore with all those attributes. You'll know because he'll be different. He'll think different. He'll look different. And he'll have the eyes of sharpness that could cut right through you. All these things were talked about when Weta Weta married Parekoa too. Werawera and Parikohatu had four children, and every time one was born, they would be taken to Karawaputa. 
to see whether this child was the tanifa. E koro tini te tanifa, sinoke te kau. Pine Nixon, so there was, uh, yeah, there was Mahuinga, there was Waitui, the, all of them were taken back. Four babies, no Tanifa. By that time, the old fellow was getting a bit of hua, eh? And he says, Wai, wai hoa, wai hoa ki rangi katukua, and leave it for the heavens. You'll know the heavens will decide, and we will know. Finally, their last son was born, Te Rauparaha. He, he wasn't the cutest looking baby. He, he, <laughs> he had a sort of sharp and inclined nose, you know, not the old traditional hongi nose like mine. It was quite clean and quite slick and sharp, pointy. He had six toes. Yeah, you heard that right. He had six toes. And he wasn't as tall and lean like the rest. He was a squat, powerful, strong as the hips and the thighs and the trunk, very very, very strong. And when they took him back and they sort of said, well, surely not. <laughs> this is the Tanifa. And the rest is history for us. Ko Ross Kalman Toku Ingwa. This is Taroparaha Kewariwari, a podcast about the life of Taroparaha, based on the manuscript written by his son, Tamihana. In this podcast, we'll bring the stories of Taroparaha to life and try to understand the times he was living in through interviews with his descendants and tribal historians. He was more determined, he had a vision and more fixed on his opportunities than any other. The myth becomes bigger than the man himself in some respects. As well as descendants of Iwi who were his enemies 200 years ago. Why they came to Kaipoi carrying Aitahu prisoners is beyond me. Yeah, he was a monster. That view is still strongly held by many in the whanau. And we'll read between Tamihana's lines and bring a bit of context to some of the things he writes about to try to understand what it all means for us today in the 2020s. You've got to get these things in context. You've got to have them in a place that isn't going to constantly be upsetting you or upsetting the way you live or think. In this episode, we learn about the world Te Rauparaha was born into and the huge weight of expectation that he had to carry, almost from birth. We'll hear about what Te Rauparaha was like as a young fella, and how he grew into being a warrior and a leader. And we'll learn about how life at Kafia becomes so hard that the iwi has to make an incredibly difficult decision to stay in their ancient homeland where all their ancestors were buried and risk being wiped out as a people. Or to head off into the unknown and carve out a new home in distant lands. No mai ki te wāhanga tuatahi, kāwhia. Aro mai te tāwhitu, aro mai nā tūpuna, aro mai nā tūā, te ao kōhatu, mai hawakinu, mai hawakiro, mai te pōnu, mai te pōro, pōdo tia mai mātou nā huri e noho pōraruraru i te ao Our story starts in the Waikato, towards the end of the 1700s, with a huge battle. Some of the old manuscripts cite Hingakaka as the time that Te Rauparaha was born. In fact, I can think of one, you will know it, 
It starts, i whanawaia te rauparaha i te wao hinga kāka. Ko Machu Baker tēnei. He's a curator at Te Papa and a descendant of the Ngāti Tōr chief Te Rangihiroa. Hinga kāka is often cited as what was most likely the largest traditional battle in our history. It was between Ngāti Tōr and Waikato, with a whole bunch of other iwi travelling from all points of the North Island to support each side. It involves thousands of men from across the North Island, from Northland to as far south as Wellington, across both coasts. So literally thousands, some people say 10,000 or more on the battlefield, which in those times was a huge number. On the face of it, the battle at Hingakaka appears to be over resources and burned pride. It was primarily a battle that is said to have started over the division of fish with Ngāti Apakura and Pikautarangi, the grandfather of Te Pehikupe, who was the ariki of Ngāti Tōra of his generation, being dissatisfied with the division allocated to him, given his particular status, and him being unceremoniously dunked in the water in a, in a demeaning way. He wanted to seek retribution for that and raised a large army and went to war. Hinga Kaka is an incredibly important battle where many, many chiefs fell, including Piko Tarangi and his brothers. Ultimately, Ngāti Toa, Ngāti Raukawa and their allies were defeated by Waikato. In many ways, this defeat would set the course for Te Rauparaha's life. Some of those ways won't be obvious till a bit later, but one is right in front of us, in his name. Te tikanga o tēnei ingoa o te rauparaha, he rau pōhue i whārikirikitia, hei rautau mo te umu i tāona ai a te rangi kātaua e Waikato. According to his son Tamihana, the name te rauparaha refers to the convolvulus leaves, rau paraha. These were used to lie in the hāngi pit, in which his uncle's body was cooked by the enemy after he was killed in one of those Waikato battles. It might seem a bit full-on now to give a baby a name like that, but at this time it was perfectly fitting. For Taroparaha, it was a reminder that he must never forget the indignity perpetrated against his uncle and his people. His name identified his purpose, to avenge those deaths. As Dr Takuparai says, Man, it was eye for an eye, no matter how long it took. Or what generation achieved that uchu? Another way that past wrongs were encoded into the next generation from really early on was through oriori. The kupu oriori is translated as lullaby, but in te ao lullabies were pretty dark. Taku told us about a high-ranking Atitor woman called Tarangi Topiora, who was famed as a composer. She took all the children that were born to high-ranking families and she rocked them in her arms, you know, for a long time, for the first couple of years of their lives, maybe even longer. And she just drilled into them the responsibility as a bloodline from the senior and auntie to families. Even from the time children were still in the womb, Topiora sang to them about the responsibilities they were inheriting. And she would name all the people that she needed to avenge. 
That wouldn't have been Topi Ora singing to Te Paraha. She was a bit younger than him. But no doubt one of his aunties would have done this. If you were one of those children and grew up not wanting to fulfil the responsibility required of you, get out of the room. You know, so she created all your ways of revenge and hate for the enemy that all of these generations need to, to seek Utu for. that Taraupiraha was born into was a turbulent one in which there was fierce competition between neighbouring groups over resources. While Tamihana doesn't actually spend a lot of time writing about his father's childhood, there are some clues about young Taraupiraha's temperament and character. Nā he tamaiti pai a Taraupiraha i tōna ko hunga hunga tangai kaore he tangi tonu ki te u a nui iti ake he grew up as a child that wasn't a crybaby, only muttered when he was hungry. He wasn't allowed, look at me, you know, I'm better than you or anything like that. They said he was very sort of tentative, inquisitive. Um, he was very, very committed to his chores. Um, he was quite a humble sort of kid that listened, that respected his elders, his parents, and, you know, knew and understood by watching on how, you know, the iwi ran and what happened when particular tikanga and koa were being exercised. He knew to listen. Te Rauparaha had a couple of nicknames, Raha, which you'll hear people use in this podcast, and Maui Pōtiki. This second one gives some insight into another side to his personality, Maui was the great trickster of Polynesian mythology, and he was the last born, like Taraparaha. That's what Portiki means. Growing up, the youngest Maui is able to dazzle his older brothers and cousins so brilliantly that in fact he is able to recruit them back into his plans. Here's Ngāti Raukawa historian, broadcaster and language expert, Piripi Walker. This is the original Maui story. I mean... Aren't we looking at the same <laughs> personality and character here? Overall, though, Taraupiraha seems to have been a good boy. Obedient. He was ordered by a commoner to go and get the water. It was a, such a big task, no taps and no water cylinders, but getting the water, the morning and evening task, and he readily and cheerfully agreed. By the way, Tommy Hunter makes it really clear what an insult to his highborn father this was. He whakahi noa iho tēnei no tēnei tūtua. Growing up in Ngāti Tōa after the epic battle of Hingakaka would have been difficult. So many great leaders have been lost in that fight. The iwi would very much have been laying low and licking wounds. But Kafia, where Ngāti Tōa were based, was prime coastal land, and there was fierce competition for it. There was a little gap of time period there where Ngāti Tō was quite vulnerable. 
you know, when a great leader leaves, it's an opportunity for someone that you've got offside with to come and have another crack at you or, or seek Utu over different things. And I think Ngāti Tō got tested a few times in that area. When you consider what happened at Hingakaka and the great loss of life, you effectively have the wiping out of a generation of men and of leadership. Komatu Baker Dini. And I've given some thought as to the environment that Te Rauparaha and Tarangi Hayata and Te Pehi and Tarangi Hiroa and all that generation of younger men, all born and raised in Kafia, in the aftermath of Hingakaka, who actually raised them? Who were their parental figures? Who nurtured them? Who schooled them? It doesn't paint a very happy childhood picture and one that is probably littered with all kinds of trauma and, and challenges. But despite the trauma and challenges and the skirmishes that followed, Taroparaha and his highborn Fananga were given the best education available. He was um, taught in the Fariwana, Rangiatia, and during, going, during his growing years, he learnt the attributes of the gardening, of waka building, of oratory, of building whare, building houses. He learned all the reo, he learned all the pao, he learned all the whakatauki, he learned the whakapapa, the iwis around the muti. Their society wasn't completely destroyed, but it must have been significantly damaged. Um, but clearly there was enough for them to be classically schooled in every aspect of life that you'd expect. These were men of, uh, and women of great artistry, master carvers. You don't just become a master carver like Tepehi or Trangi Hayata. You're going to hear a bit about Tepehi and Trangi Hayata. They're both important to Te Rauparaha's story. Tepehi was the ariki, or highest-born chief of Ngāti Toa. Tarangi Hayata was also very high-born, a renowned warrior, composer, carver and tohunga. He was also Taroparaha's nephew. Both Tepehi and Tarangi Hayata were a few years younger than Taroparaha, so they often looked to him for guidance despite their superior lineage. And Tarobah grew to be quite an astute young fella, a very, a very capable young fella. And it's around this time, in his late teens, when Tarobah began to prove his bravery as a warrior. Tarobah is living at Maungatotari with his mother's people when there's an enemy attack. Tarobah has a skin condition and he can't flee. The upper part of his legs is covered in a rash. Kapuya mai ngā manuka e tōna ringa o tētehi taha o te ara o tētehi taha o te ara. So he stays put and hides in a manuka bush. Nō te tatanga mai o te huariri e whai mai rā te pekinga ake o te rauparaha i roto ngā manuka i puia rā e ia. Te rauparaha springs from the bush and manages to slay one of the attacking party yelling Kai au te ikai te atu. I have the first fish. There are heaps of these old idioms in Tami Hunter's manuscript. And, helpfully, he explains many of them. The first fish is the first person killed in battle. He's coming along very, very well. Sharp, swift, very quick. 
Teropraha spends a lot of his young life fighting various enemy iwi around the Waikato. Some battles are won and some are lost. Teropraha becomes the weapon bearer for his uncle, Hapeke Tuarangi, the paramount chief of Ngāti Raukawa. Under Hape, Teropraha learns the art of war. When Hape goes into battle, Teropraha is nearby, holding on to Hape's cloak. This is how Teropraha earns his stripes as a warrior. And it was common practice, a way of training young chiefs in the art of war, allowing them to get up close enough to observe, but not so close they'd be involved in the fighting. And all through his youth, Hingakaka, that huge battle that took out so many Ngāti Tōrangatira, is never far from Teropraha's mind. Tamihana talks about how grief and anger gnaw away at Teropraha because the killing of so many of his kin had not been avenged. It's a, a really classical patupaunamu. It's about 30, if not close to 40 centimetres 40 long. centimetres, yeah. yeah. Kawa kawa variety paunamu. It's beautifully made. It has wonderful proportions. We're stepping forward in time for a moment to modern-day Aotearoa. I'm with Machi Baker at Pātaka Gallery in Porirua, where there's an exhibition of Ngāti Tōa history in Taonga. We're looking at a stunning greenstone weapon named Amokura, the fine work on the reke, um, the way the suspension hole's been drilled, and just the general proportions of the manufacture of the row. It's early customary manufacture, and it's a very fine example. Amokura used to belong to Te Rau Paraha. That's right. When you can look at the potu today and see that this taonga, this touchstone, links us directly to that history. We can use these as a point to launch off and tell these stories and place us in them from our present to our past, and from this point forward into our futures with our children and our mokopuna. Before Te Rauparaha had it, Amokura belonged to his uncle, Hapia. Remember, Te Rauparaha was the weapon bearer for Hapia. That's how he learned the art of war. Eventually, Hapiki Tuarangi finds himself at the end of his life. He looks for a successor. Ngāti Tōkaumātua Takuparai takes up the story, which he's heard from his elders over the years. When um, Ape was, I guess, on his, on his deathbed, he asked a question, who's going to take over? <laughs> who's going to take over the leadership? In the account written by the 19th century Te Arawa historian, Wurumu Maihi Tarangi Kahike, none of Ape's own children stepped forward. They were too busy grieving to put themselves forward. But Teropraha saw his opportunity. He wasn't even in the room. He was, he was quite younger, so no room in the whare, where they took their people to pass away. He was outside listening through the thatch, I suppose. Who's going to take Amokura and lead us into the future, asked Hapi. So he came into the room, pushed his way to the side of his kura's bed, said, oh, well. he said, you go to the next world, the world of our tūpuna. And there, you hear my footsteps shake this earth from here down to the other island. 
And I said to my uncle, man, we didn't know what the hell. And around the world. He said, well, he did what he did throughout his life. The hoodie know what they are and the stamping of feet around. He said, well, you look where the old blacks do as I come. Be in France one day, Italy the next, South Africa the next day, they get up there. I'm going, holy heck. Taraupara takes the mere Ponamu Amulkura from his uncle Hapi, and to seal the deal, he marries Hapi's widow, Tiako. But that doesn't mean he actually becomes the leader of Ngāti Raukawa. He's the last son of Parikohatu, who's the last daughter, so he's pretty far down the hierarchy. Some think he's just an ambitious upstart, but also I think that by this time, he's already chosen, or been chosen, to focus on leading Ngāti Tōa. This is not to say that he cuts ties with Ngāti Raukawa, but just that he makes a pragmatic decision that he couldn't lead both iwi. At about this time, around 1818, Taropraha hears that some of his hauraki-based whanaunga have got their hands on some muskets. At this point, only a few iwi have managed to get hold of firearms because they happen to live at places visited by Pākehā and these iwi have begun to dominate the others, who are still relying on hand-to-hand weapons like patu and taiaha. So Taropiraha goes to Hauraki and is given a pair of muskets along with powder and bullets. Tamihana says he's pretty pleased with himself, because he'll finally be able to avenge the deaths of the Ngāti Toa and Ngāti Raukawa people at Hinga Kaka and other later battles. And over the next year, he gets the opportunity to try out his new weapons. At this period in history, there's a lot of war parties, Opitawa, that go on these long-distance rampages all over the country, fighting just about anyone who gets in their way. This is the period best known as the Musket Wars. The large ope of Ngāpuhi, Tāmati Wākanene and Patswani were amongst the leadership and a great many northern leaders. It was a very large contingent of people that travelled down the west coast and arrived at Kafia. Ko Machu Baker Tine, Tamati Wakanini, an important rangatira of Ngāpuhi, is a close friend of Taraparaha's. And at Kafia petitioned Ngāti Tua to join them. About 60 Ngāti Tua warriors joined forces with Ngāpuhi and set off on one of these upi in an overland expedition south. That then went effectively on an adventurous marauding raid down the west coast of the North Island as far as Wellington, causing a bit of havoc along the way. It's on this trip that Taraparaha learns about Te Whanganui Atara, the Wellington region. Tommy Hanna writes about this opi attacking mana whenua as they make their way down to Ika Amaui. Haere tonu mai ki Whanganui, whiti tonu mai ki tēnei tā, patu haere tonu mai i tērā tahatika, whangehu, Sometimes it led in part being fully sieged with considerable slaughter as a result of that. And in other times they'd make peace, they'd have an exchange of gifts 
and um, and then move on. They did this throughout the entire expedition from its way down from Kafia through the west coast of the North Island down to Wellington. South of the Rangitike River, they find the iwi who have been in the region for many generations. Descendants of a couple of brothers who arrived on the Kutahopo Waka. There's Ngāti Appa, Rangitāne e Muaupoko, all living between here and Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington, as well as around Te Tau Ihu, the top of the south. And Te Rauparaha and his Ngāti Tōr and Ngāpuhi mates have come to this region to cause havoc, including on Kapiti Island. They sieged Kapiti Island during that time And um, while it didn't initially fall, I think the defenders of the Parangkapiti Island recognised that they weren't in a great position right now and um, saw themselves to making some peace with Te Pehi by offering him a meripaunamu if they were to then just leave them alone and go on their merry way. And that's effectively what they did. the, the rangatira of the pa came out, made a formal peace with the pehikupe, and presented his meripaunamu to him, and then satisfied, the expedition moved on. The Yoki travels all the way to the Wairarapa. They are on their way back, on a beach on Wellington's south coast, when an important event takes place, though it might not seem very important right now. Te Rauparaha and the other Sea Pākehā ships sailing through Raukawa Moana, Cook Strait. And they lit fires to try and attract the ship in. Historians think that the ship belonged to the Russian explorer Bellingshausen, who was in the area in June 1820. The ship's log does record seeing the fire, but they declined the invitation to make landfall. And Ngāpuhi had well-established relationships and trading um, relationships with Pākehā generally, and made a point of this to, to Te Rauparaha and said, well, you know, clearly Pākehā are visiting this part of the country. They're in Iwi Rangatira, and if you were to come here, you might have good access to them. Tamati Wākanini says to Raha, E Raha, tō kāinga, tangohia ki a tata koe ki te Pākehā. He iwi atawhai te iwi e rere rā i runga i te kaipuke, me he mea kariro i a koe e te kāinga nei. Raha, if you take this place, you will be powerful. The Pākehā will give you guns. You will conquer the people of this place. Te Rauparaha mauls on what Te Wakanene, his Ngāpuhi friend, has said to him. Kua whakāro a Te Rauparaha, he tika raua ngā kōrero mai a Te Wakanene, kia hoki mai ai ki te tango i tēnei kāinga i Wairarapa. That he should return and take Wairarapa which was the name Te Rauparaha used for the Lower North Island. So, yeah, that was the occasion that that seed was planted. Soon after this, Te Rauparaha and his crew head home to Kafia, 
And there's actually some evidence that by the time he gets there, Taropara already made the decision to go back to the area because he started laying the political groundwork for a return. Um, he made some friendly alliances here with Ngāti Rangita um, with um, Ngāti Raitara, you know, a bit of kahununu all here. Ko Taku Paraya no. In particular, there's a marriage arranged between Tarangihayata, Taroparaha's nephew, and Ngāti Apa Wahine to Pikinga. And she's Ramatita's daughter, who really held that Papaoya end of the doorway into to the Rangitika, into this area. As well as to Pikinga, Ngāti Tua received a big slab of ponamu from Ngāti Apa to cement their union. According to some sources, Kāpiti Island was also part of the deal. So when he did make the decision to, to go back and get tour, he had already sort of laid a foundation. Taropiraha goes back to Kafia, hoping the peace will hold and that they'll be welcomed on the return to the region. While Taropiraha has been away from Kafia, the war with Waikato hasn't subsided. And actually, Waikato have made the most of having Ngātitoa warriors out of the area. Raha comes back to find his wife, Marori, has been killed. That was his wife, his child wife. Yeah, yeah they were bequeathed as young kids, you know. And she was going to a tangianga on what they call the common tracks, the tawatapu tracks. There were certain tracks that you could travel on day and night and not be molested because they were free of any type of tapu. They were nor anyone. You could meet the, you know, the person you don't like in this world and just go about your business. But she was murdered on it. She was killed on it. So that brought about the rage of Ra. The killing of Marori was a political assassination. Waikato were trying to send the message that Ngāti Toa were no longer welcome in Kafia, their ancestral home. They follow up her killing by sending war party after war party to really make things so uncomfortable for Ngāti Toa. Perhaps the final straw is the large battle of Takakara, near Kafia, which ends up being a rerun of Hinga Kaka. Waikato come out on top. So the battle of Takakara was the last major battle we had in Kafia before leaving, and at that point our tenure, our long-term tenure in Kafia, probably was untenable. According to Tamihana, Taropiraha thinks day and night about migrating south. He was actually very very determined to, to make a move. Not only would a move to the south of the North Island open up access to Pākehā trade, it would also bring the resources of Te Waiponamu within reach, especially Ponamu, greenstone, the substance prized above all others. But it's torn, as Taku says. How do you leave your ancestral fishing grounds, your Urupa, Tainu Waka itself, where they've been since they've arrived? How, how do you leave that? It's not an easy decision to make, but it sounds like he obsessively thought out the pros and cons. He was prepared to cut his own track. But he needed to convince the others. The kaupapa was te but the decision to make the move would reside with the council. Everyone of consequence would have to agree. And he knew, he knew that it was going to be a task and a half because he didn't come from the, from the senior line. That was Tepehi. Tepehi was the Ariki, but I think the driving force of the Iwi came from Taropara. 
he nui raua te pākeha ki tēnei kāinga. Ko te wāhi tata atu ki tērā motu, ki te kāinga, hua te paunamu, hei whakarangatira i te tangata. Pākeha, paunamu, an abundant kai. That's what Te Raubaraha tries to sell the rest of the iwi on. Me heke tātou ki te tango i wairarapa i te waipaunamu hoki. And I think everyone recognised the wisdom of it. Machu Baker. That that time had now come for us where Kafia was not a place where we continued to maintain our stand and that we needed to find somewhere else and that there might even be other benefits to that, like trade and access to technology. They could see the world was changing. All of our tūpuna, everywhere you look, were almost largely very aware of this and progressive, but actually just simply very pragmatic. Roha visits allies in Hauraki, the Waikato and Bay of Plenty trying to get them to migrate too. Ngāti Tōa is only a small iwi at this time, and they could do with their numbers being bolstered. But they all refuse to join the migration, as do Ngāti Kuata, a hapu of Ngāti Tōa. Kia oia rā no te pōro o māua kaki, oia iho ki kāwhia, ki te one one o tātou tūpuna. If the napes of our necks are to be bowed, let them be bowed at kāwhia, on the soil of our ancestors. Eventually, Taropraha heads back to Kafia without finding any support. And then Ngati Tor's hand is forced. Word comes that Waikato is about to launch another attack. Worried that they won't survive it, the call is made. They decide to go. Coming up in the next episode of Taropraha Heiwariwari, Ngati Tor leave behind everything they've ever known moving south into dangerous territory. Running the gauntlet, effectively. Well, they come from behind and, and trying to annihilate us. Moving south into dangerous territory. Everything turns to custard at that event. This series was made possible with funding from Manutu Taonga, Ministry for Culture and Heritage. It was researched, co-written and hosted by me, Ross Kelman. Kirsten Johnstone from Popsock Media produced, edited and sound designed the series. Music is by Mukultron, Oriana Tikau, Alistair Fraser and Phil Boniface. Tor Waka is the voice of Tamihana. Melody Thomas of Popsock Media was our script advisor. Imogene Kelly, Sinead Overby and David Green from Manitou Taonga provided production support and historical checks. Narration was recorded by Phil Brownlee and the sound mix is by Anaru Dalziel. I'm grateful to all of our kaikōrero who have so generously shared their knowledge, their wisdom and their compassion. Dene te mihi aroha kia koutou katoa. Tukituki o te pau, 
Whakarohi o ngā pekerangi, ngā tūkupu, ngā tokoru o tēnei tangata, o tēnei pūrākau, o enei tūpuna. Ki ui a winiwini, ki ui a wanawana, hare atu te haukino, te hauhuna, te haukaitaua. He toka tumoana, haramai te toki, haumie, huie, tāiki e.